Welcome to episode 13 of the Napoleon Podcast, a very special edition of the Napoleon Podcast, because for this edition, for the very first time after over six months of recording the show together, Jay, David Markham and Cameron Riley are in the same room of the same city in the same country. Uh, we, we met for the first time yesterday and uh, here we are doing a show. Welcome to the show, Mr. Markham. Well, hello, Cameron. It's wonderful to be here, and, and you neglected to point out we are also, for the first time, on the same day. It's no longer me on Tuesday and you on Wednesday. And uh, I've got to say it's a, it's a pleasure to, to meet you. Uh, you're every bit uh, the, the, the friendly fellow that I have imagined you would be. Uh, you, you've joined us for just a while. Just as good looking, even more well, good looking. Well, I was just, you, yeah. you're interrupting me Sorry. here. You're let, not letting me. I was me, trying to put words it, in your mouth. Well, you didn't have to because mm -hmm. I was about to say you, you joined us for the uh, Napoleon, or rather the Dummies uh, Authors uh, Unconference here in, in San Francisco. And let me tell you, uh, the, the ladies uh, who were there uh, were each and every one more interested than the other in, in getting to meet you. So uh, I just kind of disappeared into the the uh, famous uh, San Francisco fog, and and you uh, you you showed up and, and and took the place by storm. But it is wonderful to to see you here, and and it's uh, it's something I hope we'll do again. Well, we're going to attempt to do a podcast, folks. Uh, now, as you know, when David and I normally do this show, he's sitting in his study in Olympia, Washington. I'm sitting in my study in Melbourne, and we have access to our our reference materials, our source materials to do this. We, you know, we we talk off the cuff, but you know, as you know, I rely on my books very heavily uh, for for uh, letters and speeches and anecdotes. Um, I didn't bring my library with me <coughs> on this trip. But, you know, we have uh, David's most excellent book, uh, Napoleon for Dummies, which uh, we highly recommend you go and click on the link on the website and buy if you don't have it. Um, and we're going to use that for some notes today, but we're, we're tackling a particularly tricky period, uh, a very exciting period. This is the War of the Third Coalition. Just to recap, if it's been some time since you've listened to our most recent episodes, we talked about how uh, Napoleon managed to sign a number of peace treaties uh, with all of the countries of Europe, including Britain, and then it didn't last very long. We had the, the Treaty of Amiens, we had the Treaty of Lunaville, and uh, basically they all got broken, uh, particularly by the British. And when we did that episode, we, we talked about the fact that the British broke the peace treaty and we were going to go into the war that's known as the war of the third coalition then we stopped and we went and did the coronation when napoleon became emperor in our last episode which kind of brings us now up to around about 1804 and the build-up to the war of the third coalition so why don't you take us through a little bit about that david what's happening in europe in 1804 well, the problem was, as, as it has been throughout our discussions, that the ruling powers of Europe were extraordinarily uncomfortable with Napoleon as a ruler of, of France. Uh, they were uncomfortable with him for probably a variety of reasons. One, of course, is that they longed for the Bourbons, the quote-unquote legitimate rulers of France, the historic rulers of France. and people with whom they generally uh, got along, at least in the sense of recognizing them as, as being very similar to the kind of ruler they were. Ruling by the grace of God. Well, that's right. And uh, not as an upstart usurper. That's right. Well, they called uh, Napoleon, of course, the great usurper, the great thief of Europe. Uh, and, and this had started before then, and it, and it continues on. As, as I was explaining to, to some of my uh, colleagues here in, in San Francisco at the uh, Authors Conference, the... The reason we have many of the stereotypes of Napoleon that we have, including such simple ones as that he was short, uh, which of course he wasn't, uh, is because the British uh, dominated the, the market uh, in manufacturing images of Napoleon. Uh, from the very earliest days when he was a, a general back in 1796, they were doing this, and they, they continued to do it. There was a brief lull uh, during the Peace of Amiens, but, but once that peace was broken, the, the character of the people went right back to town, and, and that's where we get an awful lot of the imagery. So the other reason that they didn't like him, of course, was that he was becoming quite powerful, 
and, and they feared France. Now, they had feared France before. After all, Louis XIV uh, had, had certainly been uh, happy to, to dominate Europe, and, and uh, this, this, he was a Bourbon, but that didn't stop them from, from having disagreements with him. Uh, but with Napoleon in power, <clears throat> they were quite fearful that he had designs on the rest of Europe. Uh, most of this, of course, was led by our old friend, uh, Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain was convinced that if Napoleonic France was to remain powerful, that would be a direct threat to their survival. And, and, and they were not very interested in having that, especially given that they were right across the English Channel, as we've said before. The, the, the fear of a French invasion was a very real fear. Now, the way to avoid that, of course, would have been to just maintain the peace of Amiens. Napoleon had absolutely no interest in invading an England that was at peace with him. He was quite content, in, in my view, to, to uh, for, for many, many years at the very least, uh, maintain peaceful relations uh, with, with Great Britain and with the rest of Europe. <clears throat> but Great Britain didn't see it that way, and so she began to put together a third coalition uh, that would include uh, uh, Austria uh, and uh, Russia, among others. Now, obviously, I can imagine that they thought the longer Napoleon had peace, the, the longer he would have to organize himself, build up armies, you know, gain some economic prosperity, which enables you to build bigger armies and, and better supplied armies and all these sorts of things. But, you know... Was the continental system in place at this time? Was that part of their motivation? Had he banned imports of British goods into Europe by 1804? Did that come later on? No, that, com that comes later on. Uh, remember, af after all, with the Peace of Amiens, one of the, the conditions of the Peace of Amiens was increased trade. Now, the British had a, a, a certain legitimate gripe that Napoleon was slower uh, than he probably should have been, or at least that the British thought he should have been, to open up some of the, the, the trade agreements that, that, that they had agreed to do. Uh, but this was a, a minor adjustment compared to uh, British refusal, as we discussed, to give up the island of Malta or to even uh, agree to some kind of a trade-off for them maintaining uh, the island of Malta, some territory in the, the boot of Italy, for example. So... You know, when you really get down to it, as far as the Peace of Amiens is concerned, it's it's very difficult to fix the blame anywhere else but Great Britain. Now, Great Britain no doubt felt she was justified. And you can certainly make an argument that, okay, if, if France is in fact more powerful than, than we thought she was and, and we can't quite trust Napoleon and so maybe we have to go back to, to square one. Uh, but I would have uh, suggested, if that was going to be your argument, uh, that you shouldn't have signed the Peace of Amiens to begin with. And, and of course, they did sign. Uh, but when that falls apart, you have the Third Coalition forming, and Napoleon is on the coast. He's over at Bologna, uh, and he is massing his uh, army. I'm just <laughs> one of the things you can do when you're in the room together is I can gesture to David with fingers. I just ask him to come closer to the little microphone that I've got plugged into the bottom of my iPod. And I don't want. Sorry you to, if I threw you there. David. And by the way, when he says he gestured with fingers, he didn't give me the finger. I want I want that to be clear as well. But yes, I'm sitting in an easy chair here, and and I have a tendency to lean back. See, when we do these things uh, in our respective homes, I at least uh, I have headphones on. Uh, with a microphone that's attached to the to the headphones, and so I can walk around the room if I want to within the length of the cord uh, and lean back in my chair or whatever. But here I can't do it because I've got the uh, microphone <coughs> plugged into an iPod. Now I've got to tell you that we digress again, but but this is uh, this is a, a, another example of the, the the amazing technology. I had visions that that uh, Cameron would have to bring his laptop and. And my goodness, uh, we, we, do we need to have Wi-Fi available in the room and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but in fact, uh, here we sit with a little iPod, uh, and he's got some little microphone that he's plugged into. I guess it's the USB port on the thing. Uh, and so there's a little red light that says that it's on. And... Uh, the audio, the audio fidelity probably won't be as good as our normal shows, but you know, we're, we're hopefully it will be good enough. 
Now, we've talked a little bit about um, Britain's motivations here. What about the other countries? Why were they interested in breaking their own respective peace treaties with France at this stage? Hadn't they learnt their lesson by now that uh, Napoleon was not a guy to be trifled with? Well, you would think that they had learned their lesson, but they each had various reasons that they thought were were appropriate. For one thing, they were both, <clears throat> or at least Austria, between Austria and Russia, Austria was under some pressure from the Pope. The Pope had never been comfortable uh, with Napoleonic France, the fact that he had participated in the coronation uh, notwithstanding. He was particularly unhappy with the fact that Napoleon got himself uh, crowned the king of Italy, which he thought might be something of a direct threat to his own position. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Austria, of course, was also concerned about Italy. Austria, uh, you'll recall, back in 1796, had controlled very much of northern and central Italy and rather liked that, thank you very much, and resented Napoleon coming in not once but twice in, in 1796 and, 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 and then again in 1800 and, and ousting them from their position of control. Uh, and now here he sets himself up as king of Italy and of course northern Italy is right on the border with the Austrian Empire so they're not they're not happy about that. Uh, Napoleon has uh, made inroads into the, uh, the various small German republics and they're not happy. The Austrians are not happy about that. In fact, they're rather outraged by it. Uh, uh, Bavaria uh, and, and, and Baden and Württemberg, uh, three small principalities in, in, in what we now call Germany, had allied themselves with Napoleon. And so Austria was thinking that, that they were being hemmed in uh, both on the south and then on, on, on the northwest uh, uh, by, by Napoleon's actions. And of course Russia, who always felt that they had the, the right to dominate East, Central, and, and even Central Europe, uh, certainly the old part of what we now call Poland and, 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 and so on, uh, was, was very concerned that Napoleon was making these inroads in, into Central Europe uh, and, and, and wanted to find some way to reestablish a, a better balance. And of course, their idea of a better balance was to, at the very least, push Napoleon back to the borders of France and quite possibly uh, to get rid of him. I don't think that the Russians were quite as interested in, in, in the Bourbon uh, uh, being brought back uh, as, as uh, say, uh, the uh, uh, Austrians were, and certainly not as much as the British, but they were certainly interested in seeing Napoleon uh, reduced in, in size and scope. So uh, Russia at this time is still under the reigns of Tsar Paul, or has Paul been assassinated oh, this, by... This is Alexander. So this, is, this is Tsar Paul's Alexander. Gone and Alexander's in, his son Alexander's in control. Exactly. And Alexander had been friendly enough toward Napoleon, but much less so than his father. Paul had been quite willing to, to have peace treaties and, and alliances with Napoleon, Alexander was much more attuned to the, the desires of his nobility, of his business class. They were much less interested in, in France becoming too strong. Now, I, I've always been a firm believer that most wars are motivated by money. Uh, you know, economics is what drives most battles, and they get trussed up as you know for all sorts of nationalistic and religious reasons. But at the end of the day, it comes down to money, I think. Was this a, an attempt on behalf of these countries to regain territories that they had lost under these peace treaties with Napoleon so they could get back the, the uh, farms and the, the taxes of those lost territories? Well, I don't know that I would put it that way. I'm not sure just how much territory that, uh, that they thought they were going to be successful in, in, in reclaiming. Uh, certainly, uh, as I suggested, uh, parts of Italy uh, might well have fallen back under the control of uh, of, of Austria, uh, what would go on in Central Europe vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the German republics uh, is a little bit more difficult to tell. I think at the very least, though, they wanted to stop Napoleon and prevent him from, from going any further. And, you know, and speaking of money, <clears throat> it, has, it, it, it has to be said that the money for this coalition was once again coming from our friends uh, in London. 
Britain. <laughs> now was, we get it, we get accused of Brit bashing on this show. Well, you know, and, and I and, and as, as I've said before, I, I'm I, I'm a real Anglophile today. I love going to Britain. Uh, I, 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 London is one of my favorite cities to visit. I've got a number of, of British friends uh, uh, who who are who share my interest in this period of history. That they don't always agree with me, but but that and that's fine. Napoleon actually has his admirers in in, in Great Britain as well. There's a Napoleonic Society or Napoleonic Association uh, in, in Great Britain. David Chandler. That's right. David Chandler was one of the the great Napoleonic scholars, uh, and of course he was the head of military studies at Sandhurst. Uh, for many, many years, and an old and dear friend of mine before he passed away. Uh, but liking Great Britain now is not the same as agreeing with British policy then. And British policy <coughs> then, in, in my view, was a disaster. I think it was a disaster for Europe. I frankly don't think it was in the long term in the interest of Great Britain. Uh, imagine, as, as I believe I've said on, on previous shows, imagine what it would have been like for the British people, as well as the French people and all the other people of the continent, if the Peace of Amiens had lasted, if all of the so-called Napoleonic Wars after 1800 or so had not occurred, if all those people hadn't been killed, if all of the destruction, if all of the squandering of resources. Uh, you know, wars are not expensive, are not cheap. I, I have an old expression I use in teaching. You know, you all of us have heard there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, I like to point out there's no such thing as a free war. And in America, for example, that's one of the things that we're beginning to understand, whether you support the, the, the war in Iraq or don't support the war in Iraq. And I, I really don't want to get into that. But we have to recognize that it's extraordinarily expensive. It's a huge drain on the treasury. Uh, and, and again, you may feel it's a good drain or a bad drain. But for the people of Europe at that time, it's almost impossible to say that somehow they were made better by now another 10 years or so of virtually constant warfare over whether or not Napoleon should be allowed to be maintained on, on, on now the throne of France. Well, you just have to look at the uh, period of the Enlightenment in the latter part of the 19th century and all of the benefits that that brought to Europe when they were able to cease some of these internal conflicts. Uh, if they'd been able to start that 50 years earlier, it would have brought many more benefits. Oh, ab but absolutely. I mean, even the Peace of Amiens, even that little year and a half or two-year period, Things got a lot better. There was freedom of travel. Uh, people would flock, as I think, again, we mentioned, flock to Paris uh, to, to, to enjoy Paris, as people enjoy Paris today, to see Napoleon. Uh, and and it, things were just far, far better. And imagine if all the money and the energy, including the creative energy that went into warfare uh, during this next 10 years, had instead gone into art and music and medicine and science and infrastructure and, infrastructure and, and, and you name it. So um, just to, to pander to our uh, uh, Anglophile listeners for a moment, because, uh, you know, you and I obviously tend to take a pro-French uh, perspective on some of these things. Uh, really? It's <laughs> shocking. I know it's just going to be shocking <laughs> to a lot of our audience. The, um, is there a, an alternative uh, perspective on the, the lead up to the War of the Third Coalition? I mean, the, the Anglophile listeners, what would they say that the reason for the Third Coalition was? Well, the British would say that it was in their best interest not to have a great power on the continent. The, the British have always taken the approach that they wanted what they would call a balance of power. They didn't want any continental power, whether it be Russia, Austria, Spain, or, or France, uh, to the, have too much power. But, the, but after the Treaty of Amiens, <clears throat> there was balance of power. So how is that an excuse for breaking a treaty? I don't understand. Well, and, and I don't understand. <clears throat> Excuse me. I really don't get it either. I mean, to me, as a historian, and not someone who's you know pro-Napoleon or anti-Napoleon, trying to look at that question objectively. What was in it for Great Britain? And I really do have a very difficult time understanding what was in it. 
Uh, I think part of it may have been that they just never were comfortable. They they did the piece of Amiens somewhat under duress and somewhat under public pressure because the people were sick of war. And I think when they realized that all they really had to contribute was money and that the Austrians and the Russians would be willing to to uh, maybe carry the water for them, they just decided that was too good a chance to pass up, although they should have known uh, that it wasn't likely to be very successful. Uh, and, and, of course... When when the action begins, now, of course, they've got reason to worry because Napoleon is, in fact, on the coast with what is now termed the Grande Armée, the Great Army, and, and he is, in fact, preparing once again, as he at least gave consideration to in 1798 before he went to uh, uh, Egypt, uh, the possibility, concerning the possibility, allied now with Spain, having the Spanish Navy at his disposal as well, uh, of going to uh, uh, invade England. Whether or not that would ever have worked, whether or not uh, it was something that would have been successful, it's hard to say. However, the fear was there. There was the great fear of invasion. Uh, there was a great fear he would go up to, uh, to uh, Ireland, for example. And in fact, at one point, there actually were French troops that were landed uh, in Ireland. Uh, and that then from, from Ireland they would sweep down with their Irish allies and, and take over. Whether or not that was ever really truly going to happen, frankly, I've got my doubts because I'm not sure that Napoleon ever really had the wherewithal to do that. Uh, he didn't have it in 98, and I'm not so sure he really had it uh, in 04 either. But that was the fear, and that was the underlying uh, motivation, I think, that finally brought... Great Britain into the Third Coalition. Now let me let me let me take a great risk here for a moment, and I'm going to bring contemporary events into the show. And I know this drives some of our audience crazy, but I think it's it's worth while touching on this. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I read a book, uh, the, a, a kind of book that people may term a conspiracy theory book, and it was talking about. If you look at uh, you know the history of the last 500 years in Europe and, and in the West. And how all of the wars have been motivated by money and financed by the big banking families, uh, particularly you know in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And in this book, I've never read this in a book about Napoleon per se, but there was a suggestion in this book that the big banking families like the Rothschilds at the time were playing this speculation game because they were the ones that were actually financing these wars. You know, the, the, the treasury of Great Britain and the treasuries of all of these countries needed to borrow money to fund these battles against Napoleon. They were borrowing them at somewhat usurious rates from the banking families of Europe. Uh, you know, very, very old uh, Jewish banking families, uh, the Rothschilds and, and uh, I can't think of the other big banking families of the, of the, the day. The Medici? Well, I don't know. It's, I don't know where the Medici's were at this stage, but yeah, I mean these sorts of families, and that uh, they were actually behind a building fear and all these sides because they were the people profiteering from the wars because they were loaning money to the treasury and getting paid, you know, twenty percent per annum uh, interest rates on that. And I look at today what's happening and you know the the various conflicts that are happening around the world today. The money that's being used to fight those battles is coming from somewhere. Somebody's profiteering from these wars now as they did then. Have you read anything about the role of the Rothschilds? Well, I, I, I don't think that we can pin the, the wars of this period uh, strictly on, on, on bankers. There were certainly lots of people who made enormous amounts of money uh, on, on war then as, 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 as they do now. I'm not sure that the, the bankers are even necessarily first in line. You have all of the people who manufacture the weapons of war. The industrial the military complex. Well, the, of the industrial day. military <laughs> complex, exactly. And, and you have, uh, <clears throat> I, I've mentioned before, uh, certainly in our conversations, people like Josephine when, when Napoleon was in uh, Egypt who was engaging in war profiteering. The, the supply uh, depots were rummaged through routinely. Uh, the, the, the whole system of supplying the military 
was just corrupt from from one end to the other, uh, and that's got nothing to do with the bankers particularly, uh, Rothschilds or, or anyone else. Now, were the bankers happy to make money loaning uh, governments uh, these things? Of course, just like it was uh, Swiss and and uh, Dutch bankers who loaned France the the money that they needed to to basically finance the American Revolution. Uh, because uh, the bankers can't lose. If, if, if they're funding the British and the Austrians <clears throat> and the French and the Russians, who, whoever wins, uh, they, they're in the good books because we funded it, and whoever loses, well, that debt gets carried over to, you know, when the Bourbons come back into France, they've got this public debt they have to pay. The bankers always win. Well, bankers do have a tendency to win. I'm not suggesting, though, that they would necessarily be totally risk-free. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you which banks necessarily would be uh, culprits or potential culprits. This, this is an idea for your next book. Well, I could be. I'll have to... The bankers behind the Napoleonic Wars. Well, I, I, would, go, I would go beyond that. I would say I, I think that people need to look at war as a general rule as you say, both now as well as then, and look to see who benefits. The business it's, of it's war. It's a lot more than just, you know, this king wins and gets to keep his mm. throne, or this emperor wins and gets to keep his throne. As you say, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of other people who have vested interests in one side or another, or even just vested interest in having a war Period. Mm. Uh, if you if you make weapons of war and peace breaks out, uh, you know you're you're not going to do as well. And so you're you're onto something there. Clearly, I'm not sure that I agree with you on the the uh, the, the banker aspect. At least not entirely. Before we keep going on that, the the other breakaway I want to just touch on briefly. We when we did the coronation in our last episode, we we sort of talked a lot about the event itself. But there were obviously a lot of changes to the military system, a lot of things introduced after Napoleon became emperor. You mentioned how the army was... He introduced a lot of changes, and it was now called the Grand Army. Um, what about some of the uh, ways that he used to motivate the troops? Now, the, the, the name of the generals became... They became marshals of the empire uh, after the coronation. And the introduction of the Legion of Honour, was that post the coronation as well? Well, actually, yeah, that was that was started before the coronation. The the marshalette uh, was a way of rewarding uh, top uh, leaders and officials. It was not strictly a <coughs> excuse me a military term, a military position. It was it was a, a civilian term, although it also uh, carried with it a military command. And these were his his top military leaders, typically. Uh, and, and it was an important way of rewarding them because it came with land, the states, great wealth. If you were a marshal of the empire, you were you were, were very well to do. Uh, the Légion d'honneur was also a civilian uh, award. It could be given to a scientist or, or somebody in literature uh, as well as to somebody uh, who was in the military. Uh, and it was uh, and it was gradiated. You had the chevalier, which is the, the knight, all the way up to the grand cross, you know, and officers and so on. And a lot of folks didn't like that when it was being debated. Uh, one general is said to have sort of scoffed at Napoleon and said, "Ah, these are mere baubles about which we speak." And Napoleon very famously replies, "Yes, but it is with such baubles that men are led." And he was really on to something. Uh, as, as a veteran myself, I can tell you that I was certainly glad to have received my military uh, medals when, when I was in Vietnam so many years ago, the Bronze Star and Army Commendation Medal. Uh, and, and I think that leaders throughout history have recognized that medals, awards, recognitions uh, are very, very important to people, even if they don't carry with them in any kind of significant uh, money. But again, the martial art was, was was something different. That that made you wealthy. You were you were an instant billionaire if you if you were a marshal. And you know one of the great benefits of the revolution, of course, is that anybody 
from any background could become a marshal of the empire. So you didn't have to be born a noble, which was common throughout the, the rest of Europe at the time. You could be the son of a baker, the son of a butcher, the son of a carpenter, and you could become, through bravery and through your deeds, you could be one of the nouveau riche, which was part of the, the great, you know, this great energy that the French army had behind it sure. at the time, the ability to, to achieve in this meritocracy. Well, this all comes out of the French Revolution, when, when the French military ceased being ruled strictly by the nobility class. You know, you look at people like Marshal Ney and others, you know, whose family background was very, very basic. Uh, you, you could rise. The, the average soldier, I mean, Napoleon had, again, this very famous saying of his, uh, in every soldier's knapsack is a marshal's baton. Uh, the baton being uh, about a two-foot-long uh, uh, leather covered with gold and so forth, uh, a baton that the marshal carried uh, as a symbol of his authority, uh, and and it was uh, it was very successful. Now it has to be said, and we'll get into this again later, especially when we go to Spain and so on. That that these marshals, uh, just like Napoleon's siblings, could be more trouble than they were worth sometimes. They they thought they had. Raging jealousies between marshals, each one of whom thought he was a much better marshal than all the others put together. Uh, in Spain, we'll we'll hear again later uh, that these marshals were so egotistical they didn't want to even listen to to Joseph, who was the king of Spain and Napoleon's brother. You know, he even Joseph, you know, speaking for Napoleon, couldn't get them to behave sometimes. So, you know, whether or not it was a, a totally good idea or not is is, is certainly questionable. Uh, but it was something that became a major part of the motivation system. Uh, people who who didn't get selected as a marshal either would become very bitter and just frankly ticked off about the whole thing, or they'd work harder and hope to make it in the next round. You know, and 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 some of them. Uh, did in fact succeed at that. Okay, so let's get back onto the war of the third coalition, and um, you know, we've done half an hour. Let's, let's see. What well, we... this is this is gonna. We, who knows? This may be a short one after all. But but don't count on it, folks. <laughs> Those of you who are listening to this, uh, uh, if you didn't look to see how long the show was, don't don't assume it's gonna be over anytime too soon. We we do get long winded. Although it has to be said, I don't know if you can tell this. Uh, out there uh, but listening to this, but my voice is getting kind of raw, and I don't have my usual medication with me uh, uh, that takes care of my, my voice, my 30-year-old uh, medication that I bring in from Scotland. So I'm stuck here with a, a, a glass of uh, crystal geyser spring water. And at my age, I suppose I should say crystal geyser. I'm not, I'm not sure, but... Uh, <clears throat> so if my voice holds out, we'll, we'll talk about the fact that while Napoleon is sitting on the coast contemplating the possibility of invading the, 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 the Brits over on their islands, the Austrians and the Russians are taking the initiative. And they put together a pretty good-sized army, and, and uh, somewhere, according to my book, because I quickly look here because I couldn't remember the number, around 200,000 troops, which is, a, which is not a bad uh, uh, army for, for the day. And remember, they're out coming in from from uh, Central Europe, and Napoleon's way over on the on, on the English Channel. So for a while, at least, they have what they think is going to be pretty clear sledding. They're going to just sweep across Central Europe right up to the border of France and knock on the door and say, "Hello, Napoleon, we're here." Uh, and and uh, on paper, it looks like a pretty good possibility. So. Uh, the Austrians send General Mack far uh, into to, to Germany, uh, up toward the city of Ulm, uh, as 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 their vanguard. Uh, General Mikhail Kutuzov, the very famous uh, Kutuzov, uh, particularly of 1812 fame, uh, is in charge of the Russian army, and they're way way back. I mean, if you look at a map, Russia is way back from all of the rest of these armies, so they've got a lot of catching up to do. But they're getting there, okay? <clears throat> the main Austrian army is being brought together around Vienna, and it's starting to sort of uh, uh, laboriously move uh, forward. The, the, the Austrians, oh, and one more place. The Austrians were also under the brother of the Austrian emperor, the Archduke Charles, who, by the way, is 
by far their best military commander. You know, we, we sometimes act like there's Napoleon, who was this great leader, and then there were all these idiots out there. Well, they weren't all idiots, and the Archduke Charles actually was a very competent military leader. Unfortunately for him, he was up against uh, Marshal Massena, uh, who was also a very competent military uh, leader uh, for, for the French. Uh, so they're down there uh, in Italy. In fact, there's, there's quite some talk that uh, at the time when Napoleon rose through the ranks, Messina was uh, almost an equally famous general at the time yeah. uh, for some of the big strategic maneuvers that he had accomplished with and without Napoleon. And oh, absolutely. Was, well, Messina was the one who, who really thought he should take over the Army of Italy back in 96 mm. and, and was a little bit ticked off when, when this young upstart, you know, uh, this young uh, General Bonaparte, who, who, whose main claim to fame as far as he was concerned was that he had, had taken uh, uh, Barras's mistress uh, off his hands, uh, Josephine. Uh, and uh, so anyway, so, so Messina's down there, and Messina, in fact, does a very good job. Now, Napoleon's got 210,000 men sitting over on the coast, but they are a long way. They are hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And so the, the plan of the Allies is to send Mac as far forward as he can safely go to sort of grab territory and claim it, and then have the main Austrian army move up from a little bit further south, and then eventually the Russians will catch up. And by then they'll all be sitting on the borders of France, basically. And Napoleon uh, will be hard-pressed to, 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 to do anything because they will be roughly equal in numbers. But what they didn't take into account was who they were dealing with. When Napoleon gets word that these idiots probably in his opinion, are out there making moves against him. He turns on a dime. He says, okay, if that's the way they want to play the game. So he picks up his army, all but a handful of people that he leaves there to give an impression that the entire army is there. He institutes what we would call a, 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 a press censorship uh, or, or uh, what's the term I'm looking for? He he simply shuts off all information going to the media so no one knows where the army is. They do a series of forced marches. 200,000 soldiers march all the way from the coast of the English Channel into Central Europe. And he, he realizes that General Mack with 50 or 60,000 troops is the most forward of these uh, members of the Third Coalition. So he says, I'm going to move on General Mack. And he moves his army, not only up against the city coming from the west, but he moves his army around an enveloping motion so that he surrounds the city of Ulm. And General Mack wakes up one day you know, I can just imagine the scene. In comes one of his aides and says, <clears throat> uh, General Max, sir, you, you remember those French soldiers that were over there uh, on the uh, coast of the English Channel? Yes, yes, what about them? Yeah. Well, they're here now. <laughs> you, know, huh? you know, it's like, how did that happen? It's one of the most amazing military maneuvers in history. It really does go down with with one of the, the truly fantastic surprise moves. And, and this campaign is going to have a couple uh, uh, of, of these surprise moves, this one and the one that he does at Austerlitz itself. Because all of a sudden, he has, as he did in, in Italy, he has descended upon Mac like a thunderbolt. Well, the, the Austrian cavalry makes a bit of a give, uh, getaway, uh, but Mac eventually has to surrender. There's some skirmishes and stuff. It doesn't happen overnight, but... Mac eventually has to surrender, and the, the Austrians are, are going to be allowed to, 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 to leave peacefully. They have to leave their weapons behind and so forth. And General Mack goes out to Napoleon, and he says, Here, sir, you see before you the unfortunate General Mack. And he was unfortunate. He was allowed to, to go back to Vienna, you know, and, and <laughs> the Emperor of Austria is livid. 
with General Mack, and, and I, I don't understand this. I mean, I mean, the guy did the only thing that was reasonable. What do you want to do? Sacrifice all your troops for glory, you know? And and he's court-martialed. You know, Mack's reputation is ruined uh, because because he was defeated by by Napoleon, and and you know, an awful lot of people were defeated by Napoleon. Not just because he was defeated, but obviously how he was defeated, and how many flags and cannon and everything that was lost. Uh, you know, they pretty much lost everything, and oh, they sure. were completely routed. Oh, abs- absolutely! It was a, it was a complete rout. It was you know the, the Austrians had had no clue what was happening to them. They thought the next soldiers they were going to see was fifty thousand or so uh, uh, Russians that were supposedly heading on their way, uh, but in fact it turns out that it was the French there. So Napoleon rests for a little bit. You know, he he takes over all these things. Uh, and, and then they, they, they begin to move south uh, and, and, uh, and toward, uh, toward Vienna. They, they stop off at Munich for a while, and, and he's greeted you know, uh, by, the, by the people as, as a great hero and so on. Uh, but he knows that he really has to deal with a lot more than General Mack. Okay. Mack, is, uh, Mack is only a part of the story here. Okay. Uh, so he goes down the Danube. We, 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 we have an audience for this show. That's right. We have, <laughs> they're we passing have, secret messages to each other. We have two lovely other. ladies, and one of them just wrote something uh, <laughs> on, on a piece of paper and passed it to, to my wife, Barbara, who, who was also in the room. And, and I think it has to do with me somehow. Uh, oh, my God. Will they ever shut up as well? Some, something that, along that line. Also. Something along that line. Okay, here's... Here. Oh, it says something about having fun, but but, but that's only the yeah, last yeah, part of the message. She's, she's being very very yes. coy. These geeks are having yeah. fun. We it? are having fun. We're, we're nearly we're nearly fun. finished. We're nearly no, finished. we're not. Yeah, we're not going to do Austerlitz today. We don't have time to do Austerlitz. We're not going to do Austerlitz. No, we're going to get up to Austerlitz and then we'll do Austerlitz <laughs> properly next time. I am crushed. Because Austerlitz is an hour by itself, man. Uh, two hours. But anyway, uh, <laughs> if I let you have your way, it'll be two hours. That's yeah. right. That's right. So fine. Then then we are almost done. Because what happens basically is Napoleon moves uh, toward Vienna. Well, Vienna is not really very defensible. And so the Austrians decide that the main Austrian army is simply not going to be able to, to hold Vienna. And it moves north. It wants to link up. It's desperate to link up with the Russians who are finally beginning to, to make their, their presence known. The Archduke Charles is still in Italy. Messina has delayed him substantially, so there's no chance for him to link up. So the best shot that the Austrians have is to go up into what is today uh, the Czech Republic, uh, the, the major city of, of Brun, uh, and, and tie together with the, the Russian forces. The idea being at that point, Napoleon's army is tired, it's more spread out, he's had to leave people along the way for his lines of communication. At that point, the combined Austrian and Russian forces ought to be able to have a significant increase in numbers over, over the French, and hopefully they could, they could defeat him. There were a number of skirmishes, uh, and, and, uh, Napoleon wins all these. He moves into the palace of the Schönbrunn, which is a wonderful palace that was built uh, by the Austrians to try to to emulate uh, Louis XIV's palace of Versailles. Of course, nothing can emulate that that palace. And a little a side note here, by the way, for those of you <clears throat> who are interested and maybe have not been to Versailles, there's a wonderful movie just out called Marie Antoinette. Uh, and it's, I, I think, gives a very wonderful flavor for what court life was like, what Marie Antoinette's life was like. It was a very stilted life, a, some almost hilarious life in some respects when you see the scenes for the wedding night and the scenes for getting dressed and so on. But why I mention it is that if you've not been to Versailles, you can't get a chance to go there anytime soon, go see the movie. It's filmed on location, and the, the costumes are sumptuous, and to, to be in the real bedroom, in the real Hall of Mirrors, in the real grounds, you go to the Grand Trianon, the Petit Trianon, and, and so forth. And, and if you haven't been there in person, it's the next best thing. Because not only are you seeing it, and you might see it in a travel log of some kind, 
you're seeing it used as it would have been used at the time of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and that makes the visit all the more exciting. So just as a little aside, you know, news you can use here uh, from J. David Markham, uh, and I don't charge any extra for, for that bit of information. At any rate, so we have Napoleon in Vienna resting his troops, uh, emptying the wine cellars. Uh, we have the Austrians moving slowly northward from Italy, but still a ways away. And we have up in the Czech Republic near, uh, a, a bit now east of the city of Brunn, on the other side of a little village today known as Slokov Austerlitz. And they have met up finally with the Russians. And they're feeling pretty good about things. Napoleon has to come to them. And they will sit there for now and they will wait. And next time we will discover that they really probably shouldn't have waited and they got a heck of a lot more than they bargained for. And that's where we're going to leave it today, folks. That's 45 minutes. and uh, That's short. That's short. That's short for us, but that's because we're not doing Austerlitz. That was, you know, what we've just taken 45 minutes to do was really the 10-minute lead up to, to Austerlitz, Austerlitz. But, you know, we'll do Austerlitz next time. And, and it must be said, Cameron, that not a single one of our regular listeners, and certainly not my wife who sits in the room with us, is a bit surprised to hear that we have expanded the 10-minute intro into the 45-minute segment. No, and, and everyone, you know, continues to encourage us not to worry about that. So yes. we shan't. We shan't. Keep the emails coming. I several of you emailed me at home uh, just in the last few days. Please don't think that I have ignored you, uh, but I had to come to San Francisco and get ready for that, so I'm I'm behind in that. Send me your private emails. I'll do my best to respond. Post the comments that you do on the podcast network. We love to read them. We are very encouraged by the response that we're getting. Uh, we're very encouraged by the numbers that we're getting. And more importantly, i got to say again how wonderful it is, what a great pleasure it is to finally meet the voice on the other end of Skype, the, the, the fellow from Austria. He was my good friend before, and he's my very good friend now. Cameron, it has been a pleasure to sit here across from you. Pleasure's all mine, David. And, and, and just two uh, final anecdotes. Number one, uh, in the month of October, the Napoleon Show uh, entered the top ten on the Podcast Network's uh, podcasts, which surprises the hell out of me, I have to say. I beg your pardon. Come on. I mean, I mean, we've got a lot of shows about a lot of very, very popular kind of subjects. Sure. I never expected Napoleon would be... In the top 50, let alone the top 10. Napoleon so rules. Napoleon rocks. And uh, I'm sure most people come thinking it's about Napoleon Dynamite and just stick around for the uh, humour. <laughs> and uh, see, I have to tell the story. I, I, I mentioned... Did I tell the story? No. Um, David and I are in San Francisco, as you know, and he did tell me a couple of weeks ago that he was going to be here and we kind of organised a, a hookup. But he said he was going to be here for a book signing. But but I didn't really pay much attention to when or where or anything. Cameron often doesn't pay much attention to me. I'm no, I was I was busy organising stuff. So anyway, uh, yesterday I happened to be down at the Ferry Building in San Francisco, which um, I'm sure those of you who live around these parts will know. A friend of mine here has said, "Go down. They have a farmers market on. Lots of lovely organic food." So I was down at the far. I was down at the Ferry Building, eating, doing a bit of work, just looking around. And I thought, you know, I looked at my watch and thought it was time to go, time to head back. And happened to see a bookstore and thought, lovely, I'll go and browse through the bookstore. As I walk into the bookstore, I see this big sign saying, Dummies Signings. And I started to remember something David said, and I happened to see his name up there. And it says he's going to be appearing at 2.30. I look at my watch and it's 2.20. So I, I think, what, you know, how big is San Francisco? I come from Melbourne, you've come down from Olympia, and I happen to accidentally be in the same bookstore you're going to be in at the same time. So I go up to the proprietor of the store and say, is uh, Jay David, is this Napoleon, uh, this dummies thing on today? And he said, yes, in 10 minutes. And I said, is Jay David Markham really going to be here in person? And he said, yes. And I said, wait, he said, you, you know of him? I said, oh, he's absolutely famous. He's, you know, one of the world's leading Napoleon. And I just... Keep, keep talking. I love it. I love it. He's so good looking. He's good in bed. I just, I just, <laughs> I ramped the whole thing up. Um, and uh, all of that's true, of course. Of course, of course, it's all in the book. <laughs> and um, and then I'm, I'm standing in the bookstore waiting, and the first thing that I hear is David's voice out in the uh, foyer 
of the place talking to people and it's funny when you know somebody through talking to them and doing a show I thought oh I know that voice I hear from coming outside so anyway we got to meet for the first time so thank you very much David for uh, doing the show thank you to Lynn for letting us use your hotel room we're uh, very quiet in here and uh, we will speak to you again probably in the next few weeks we will do Austerlitz folks and thank you to Barbara for also coming up here and helping make all this possible and for all the encouragement that uh that she gives me, uh, you know, uh, without Barbara's encouragement, who knows, I might not be here now. Behind every Napoleonic historian, there's a very forgiving woman. That's that for true? sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, until next time, folks, <laughs> this is Cameron and David. Bye-bye. Whatever we know. Do we ever say? We don't have a thing, do we? I don't think we have a thing, but we'll no. just say goodbye and good luck. And next time we talk to you, it will be at the dawn where we see the son of Austerlitz. That's true. The most famous of all Napoleonic battles. And next time, I'm sad to say, uh, it's likely that you will be back in Australia and I will be back in Olympia. But uh, this was fun, and, and let's hope that we get a chance to do it again.